Okay. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Deanna Kreisel. Prof K, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Tell me what's going on, what's happening. We've already shared our mutual technological mastery before we <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it only took five minutes for me to figure out how to get the sound to work. So here we are. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, that's a pretty good segue. One of the things I'm thinking about now is technology and artificial intelligence and all that good stuff and how it's impacting us as educators, teachers, writers, readers, everything else. I am. Um, it's so funny because when you said, you know, I'm going to ask you what's on your mind. I thought, what on earth, how can I winnow that down? Because I have, <laughs> I have, what, <laughs> I have what I call the roulette wheel of doom, right? Where, you know, four o'clock in the morning, I'm lying awake and I basically cycle between the end of democracy, the end of the academy, the end of the planet. Uh, there's a fourth one that I'm forgetting right now, but I'm sure it'll come back to me in a second. Um, and and so yeah, I'm I'm kind of constantly thinking about these things. And and recently, the thing I'm thinking about most in terms of the academy is that technology question and what we're going to do when all of our students are writing everything with AI, which they're already starting to do anyway. But on the other hand, my work is on utopia, so I'm simultaneously trying to hold on to utopianism and utopian impulse and thinking about positive ways of imagining new futures and post-capitalist futures, et cetera, while at the same time being incredibly depressed and anxious <laughs> about yes. everything else that's going on. So it's it's a bit of a conundrum. Yeah. My fourth one would have been the end of love, but that's autobiographical. Oh, but oh yeah. <laughs> getting, getting back to what you're saying, I mean, one of the things I associate with your work is something really new to me perhaps not to more sage folk, namely sustainability in mm. the 19th century. Mm -hmm. The idea that within the global north, as we now call it, the notion of needing to maintain the planet was actually around quite a long time before its current iteration. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how that takes form in your research and, and writing. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm interested in sustainability, partly because I'm interested in utopia. So the two things kind of go hand mm -hmm. in hand for me. Mm -hmm. And I honestly can't really remember which one started first. I know that <laughs> I, I sort of think of them as as synergistic and feeding on each other. But I, I think I think the utopia piece came first. But anyway, uh, yeah, so my thinking about like, what is it about um the, the 19th century kind of impulse toward utopia and how does that relate to what we would think of as sustainability, which of course was not a word that they did was used in the 19th century in the same way. In fact, sustainable is in any form as a word really didn't exist until later in the 20th century. But my thinking was, well, I'm, I'm interested in finding, I'm interested in eco-criticism and thinking about the history of environmental issues and topics and concerns, and especially in the literary realm, because I'm a literature scholar, where do we look for the concept of sustainability if they're not using that word? And so that's where utopia comes in, right? This is the, the utopias of the late 19th century are the place where those thinkers and writers and novelists, et cetera, worked out these ideas for themselves. 
that's one kind of strand of it. And there was um, there was a huge, I think a lot of people know about this, a huge efflorescence of utopian writing in the last decades of the 19th century. So basically, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward in, in the US and then William Morris's News from Nowhere, which was actually a direct response to Bellamy. Bellamy had a kind of a technological utopia. He imagined basically capitalism continuing to grow and grow and grow and, and companies becoming larger and larger monopolies until they kind of took over and became a quasi pseudo state. So it was a kind of a weird amalgam of socialism and capitalism. Morris in the UK writes in response, News from Nowhere, which is an agrarian utopia, which is like, no, 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 what's really the way we're going to reach this utopian balance in this kind of sustainable future is through going backwards and becoming basically medieval again, right? And going back to a kind of an agrarian, uh, you know, fantasized future. Mm -hmm. And so it's in those utopian texts. And so there was basically there's a huge fad for writing utopias for the next 15 or 20 years, just hundreds of these novels, most of them really bad, but <laughs> right. I mean, I, I love genre fiction. I'm not, you know, when I say bad, I'm, it's, I'm, a, I'm kind of being tongue in cheek here. Cause I know that that will rile people up when you talk about genre fiction, not being as good as, you know, canonical novels, whatever. But, um, the, you know, some of it is really actually just genuinely bad, just badly written, but it's fascinating because this is where they were fantasizing about how you could make a sustainable society. Like what, where, when you sit down to write a utopia, you have to think about these questions. Where is, how are you going to circulate goods? How are you going, you know, what are your distribution problems? How are you going to educate the next generation? What's the generational buy-in? How are you going to get people to actually stay in your utopia? Or how are you going to make the transition from, you know, the kind of person who lives in this society and how is that going to, how are you going to turn people into the kind of people that can live in, in your utopian ideal future society, whatever. So the two things, and, and a lot of those questions are about sustainability, environmental sustainability, mm -hmm. where are you going to get your food, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of one big part of it is I'm really interested in that yeah. intersection between utopianism and sustainability. There are lots of other ways that people are thinking about sustainability in the 19th century as well you know, when is the coal going to run out? And what are we going to do about the population crisis? Obviously, Malthusianism is a huge concern throughout the 19th century as well. So there's lots of other things going on too, not just the utopian strand. But I just think it's interesting how lively and present these questions were, you know, even before the climate crisis, as we now know it, was, yeah. was underway. Yeah. It was still a pressing concern. And uh, thinking of I guess one of the fonds at Origo of science fiction, Frankenstein, is mm, about mm -hmm. uh, what happens when, or in part perhaps, about what happens when the perfectibility desired by science and applied technology produces a dystopia out of its apparent utopia. And, mm -hmm. and that for me feeds into a, a gender question because this is another mm. important theme in your work which is utopianism within feminist science fiction, which mm -hmm. it seems to me is is an important strand in our thinking. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm, not a, I'm far from an expert on these things, but mm -hmm. I'd love to know your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I'm thinking obviously of like Octavia Butler and, and Ursula mm -hmm. Le Guin and, and 
I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure that let's say Ursula Le Guin would have identified herself as a feminist necessarily, but certainly, right. And, and that these go back to, you know, there's some 19th century, uh, texts like Herland and other sorts of feminist utopias as well. Uh, I actually had a student a couple of years ago. I taught a course on Victorian utopias and I think it was called Victorian utopias and ecopocalypse or something like that. And, um, and as a student said, for her final project, first she wanted to research feminist utopias, and there are a few, and some that I haven't even read. Uh, you know, they're not in print. You have to get them on archive.org or whatever. And then she was like, well, no, actually, can I just write a feminist, ut- <laughs> a feminist utopia? And I said, sure. And I do allow creative projects in, in my upper level classes as long as they're, uh, you know, supplemented with a bibliography and a lot of critical work as well. And they have to engage and, and talk about the ways in which their creative work is is uh, intersecting with or augmenting the critical work that we've done together. So she actually yeah, wrote a feminist utopia. So, but yeah, I mean, I think that, and also like, um, you know, Afrofuturism and, and I would say lots of marginalized groups, like utopia is an obvious place to think about ways to, redress wrongs or imagine an entire new way of being. I mean, sometimes it feels like, you know, patriarchy, racism, colonialism is so intractable. It's so deeply a part of our culture and the global North, as you say, that the only way to think our way out of it is to start from scratch sometimes, you know, it can, it can sometimes kind of feel like that. So I think it makes sense. It's a, it's, it feels like a natural confluence of interests, right? Um, and yeah, so I think Shelley, interestingly, though, to go back to Frankenstein, mm. it's, you know, she also wrote The Last Man. She also wrote, and obviously she's Wollstonecraft's daughter, obviously. But um, it's interesting to think about how that novel, which is in some ways, and of course, there's lots of feminist readings of Frankenstein, and I teach it that way myself, too, that, you know, there there are no women in it. <laughs> Right. So there are there are some cardboard cutout characters like Elizabeth Lavenza and the mother, you know, who are just ridiculous cliches of 19th century Victorian domesticity, angel in the house stuff. Um, But she's not interested in them at all. Like the only interesting characters are are, our Victor and the creature and Walton. Walton's interesting, too. Um, But it's all very much a struggle over the kinds of terms of masculinity in a way, right? That that's, you know, and, and and parenting. And of course the whole famous thing about how it's really a retelling of paradise lost. And these characters kind of rotate between Adam and God and Satan. And it's all very masculine, right? So it is interesting. Um, it's always kind of a, a fun thing to try to get my students to see it as a feminist text, which I do think it is, but you have to kind of come at it sideways, right? A little bit. Indeed. Sorry, the cat's just getting very interested in the dog next door coming oh. home from a walk. <laughs> yeah, that that is interesting. It is. And I know. I'm a cat person, then, so I know how interesting that can be. What can then flow from this is that because he wants his midnight snack early, so only uh, I see. quarter past nine here, okay. he may thrust himself onto the laptop from a distance of five or six metres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've got to grip it <laughs> in anticipation of an assault. Make sure it doesn't go anywhere. I um. So Sorry, I have to tell. Yeah. I just have a quick funny story. I have 
my current position, I teach at the University of Mississippi. And before that, I was at the University of British Columbia for 13 years. Mm. And uh, which is always people, you know, always want to know, why would you move from Vancouver to Mississippi? And, you know, that's another kind of whole set of uh, questions and answers. But I was applying for this job, you know, and uh, I arranged a Zoom interview. And this was in 2018, 2019, I think, before I'd ever used Zoom. This was like, now it's like second nature. It's like brushing your teeth, right? We're on it constantly since the pandemic. But back then I was like, I don't know what this Zoom thing is. And I uh, I had arranged the interview during MLA, it was, but I said I was going to be at MLA physically, so I was going to have to Zoom from my hotel room. This and then is I the had Modern kind of... Language Association, yes, Sorry to interrupt, yes. which is the, the big confluence of literary studies based in the U.S., but with important elements internationally, that has a huge conference between Christmas and New Year which well, is yes. the job yes, meat yes. market, basically. It, it, exactly. It used to, well, in, I just came from MLA yesterday, actually. As a matter of fact, they, they've moved it to the first week of January, oh. but yeah. Um, and it's no longer the job market so much, uh, meat market, because finally people started to recognize how prohibitively expensive it was to ask graduate students to travel and pay for these hotel fees to, to whatever. So now, um, the first round of interviews are almost always on Zoom, and that's what this was. But because I was going to be physically at the MLA convention, I said, I'm going to Zoom with you from my hotel room. But then, sorry, this story is getting very long. It's, there's a cat in it, I promise. <laughs> but then I had a family kind of emergency, and I had to cancel my trip to the MLA. But I didn't want to go into that with these people I didn't know and a job interview, whatever. So I had to travel, and I was in a friend's house. And so I was Zooming from there and I made a big deal about how like I'd only had this one slot of time and whatever. Right in the middle of the interview, her cat like just leaps across the screen and like on the keyboard. It was just like he was in, there was no like ignoring it. You couldn't just kind of push him away. And so I just made a little joke about, oh, and this is the part of the interview where the cat shows up and everyone thought that was so funny. But the real problem was I was like, I was completely busted as not being at MLA. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, no, Why you would there have been said, a cat? Yeah. You know, some places have the house detective. This is this is the hotel <laughs> pussycat, right? There you go. I didn't think quite that fast enough. No, no. And how could you? Yeah. It's yeah. a great story. Well, um, it's now a funny story with my colleagues who are friends of mine, so we can, <laughs> we can laugh about and it. So, said, yeah, <laughs> that was the funny cat lady who thought she. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, getting back to your time in Canada, your your mm-hmm. first book, I think it's your first book, is actually published by University of Toronto Press. I think I'm right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Yep. is a very prestigious house that does wonderful work. And it is about gender. It's also about labor. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I wonder, because I'm, you know, I've got the big man on my sweatshirt. Oh, yeah. Look at that. That's Yeah. yeah. And you can see what it says underneath. <laughs> Classless, nice. Yeah, so <laughs> and he's wearing sunglasses, which is. <laughs> Carlito with sunglasses, rarely yeah. seen in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to know how that fits into this constellation of issues, because you mentioned problems with capitalism in some of your opening remarks. Mm-hmm. In terms of gender, the, the book, a, a, a real masterwork, is thinking about gender and labor together mm-hmm. in yeah. important ways. Could you tell us a bit about that and perhaps how that then relates to eco-criticism? Because as you know, there are 
strong eco-feminist strands going back at least until the 1970s. I mean, named as such as eco-feminism by mm -hmm. some French writers then, but of course of a longer trajectory that we could map out. But how does that fit in with, you know, the conventional Marxist tale of the male industrial proletarian subject as the animating locus of our collective happy future? <laughs> um, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words about my book. That's really, that's really nice of you. Um, so the, the argument of that book is essentially, I mean, it's, it's a cultural studies kind of work, right? So it's got both its interest in excavating the actual terms of political economy in the 19th century. And I, I can't kind of come at it from a slightly different angle, which I'll talk about in a second, but it's also interested in kind of cultural production in terms of like the figure of the figure of the woman as a a kind of mass cultural fantasy, right, in these novels. And so I talk about the novels of George Eliot and Thomas Hardy and how in the the novels that I examine, the protagonist is not actually it's not always the protagonist. In three of them it is, and one of them it's not, but a, a central figure who's a woman sort of becomes the locus for a kind of projection of anxieties about capitalism and about the trajectory and narrative of capitalism uh, as it was unfolding in the 19th century. So the political economy piece argument is about the labor theory of value, right? So of course, the the labor theory of value, which is Marx was a labor theory of, you know, as, <laughs> as uh, I'm trying to remember who called Marx, ah, drats. I can't remember who called Marx a minor Ricardian, but I remember thinking that like, it was like, oh, okay, that, that was a real burn. But, you know, the idea that, that Marx is working within the same basic theory of production and, and value production in particular as Ricardo, Smith, Malthus, et cetera. And so, and then the story of the 19th century of political economy is that over the course of the century and, you know, about the 1870s and 1880s, there's this marginal revolution with Jevons in the UK and Walras and these other writers who, quote unquote, discover the demand theory of value. And that's the point at which you start needing calculus, right? And, and economics, the political economy turns into economics, which is a much more professional discipline. And you start having university uh, positions in it. Whereas before it had been a kind of a gentlemanly armchair pursuit, like let's mm -hmm. sit down and think about, you know, like Malthus, let's think about these things and then write a pamphlet or whatever. Um, so my, my kind of take on that is that actually there's, and it's not just my take on it. This is not something I invented, but that there's a kind of a buried or, uh, you know, kind of alternative story, which is that the demand theory of value was there all along, right? And that in writers like Malthus, interestingly, um, and uh, De Quincey, Ruskin, right, some other heterodox economists mm -hmm. who are critical of capitalism, right, and who are actually using the demand theory of value, which is to say, that something is, you know, this is a gross simplification, but something is valuable because of the use that it has for a person rather than the, the amount of labor that went into making it, right? Um, or that, you know, the desire that somebody has for it, that that theory is there kind of all along and that uh, these novels are working through anxieties about failures of demand, right? So that the kind of in lockstep with this idea that value really comes from consumer desire, 
is an anxiety that people will stop wanting things and buying things and there'll be a general stagnation, general gluts, right? And that was the the kind of big, you know, there's, there's a lot more, there's Say's Law and all this other stuff in it too, but that's the basic gist. And so these female figures in the novel are these, like I said, they become kind of a locus for anxieties about demand. So the women in these novels are rehearsing and acting out failures of demand. And so it's a kind of a counterfactual way of reading them because normally in these particular novels, people have tended, like I'm thinking of the mill on the floss, for example, to emphasize, say, Maggie Tolliver's grotesque desire, right? That she's so, she wants so much and she's so out of control with her, you know, she has to be punished. And that's the kind of traditional, more or less traditional scholarly take on the way Victorians thought about unruly women and women who wanted more than their roles were, you know, prescribed for them, et cetera. So I'm kind of arguing the opposite, that in fact, the women are punished because of these failures of demand, and it takes some kind of countervailing reading. So I don't know if that directly answers your question. It's more, it's more like the readings that I'm doing of these texts are more about a kind of a, what I think of as a as a repressed or subconscious kind of anxiety that was present with regard to capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, that it was that it was, you know, that it ultimately would fail. Of course, there's also writers like Ruskin and John Stuart Mill and others in the mid 19th century who, you know, want capitalism to fail, right? Like they're not exactly upset about this prospect. They're, um, and Marx too, of course, obviously, uh, that, you know, the, the whole like story of that capitalism will eventually, uh, reach its, you know, its own conclusion, right? In a sense that there will be either general gluts or whatever. Um, Marx called, the anxiety or the theory of, of stagnation or general gluts, um, the bourgeois twilight of the gods, right? <laughs> it's like, so even, you know, Marx was aware of this even at the time when he's writing that this is something that the capitalists are worrying about, right? That, that, that somehow that something's going to go catastrophically wrong. And I think, I think that anxiety is kind of like not available to us anymore. I mean, I think people now are certainly worrying a lot about capitalism and about what's going to happen, but it's not, that it's not that there's not going to be enough people to buy things and there's not going to be enough demand or there's not going to be enough, you know, that somehow it's all going to kind of like stagnate. I don't think that's what our general concern is. We're much more concerned about running out of resources, rightly so. Right. And so it's, it's like, we still have the anxiety, but it's shifted form and it's mutated. And I think that's the connection then um, to the eco, eco critical piece and the eco feminist piece, mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not, I didn't sit down consciously to like start a new project that was directly related to the previous project. I thought of them at the time as very different. I was like, oh, this is a huge shift in my work. Like I'm just leaving this other stuff behind and I want to do this whole new thing. I'm super concerned about the environment and I want to like make my criticism, my scholarship have something to do with that. And so that was what I was thinking. And then of course, I'm now, as you pointed out, <laughs> discovering all the ways in which there are these confluences and overlaps and and the the two realms are really, you know, really speaking to each other, um, even though that was not my original intention. And I think that's wonderful because it gets to one of the things I like to try to understand when I'm talking to people, which is how they know the things they know. And so often, I think, for innovative people, it's about serendipity. Mm. and uncovering layers that perhaps were always there but one didn't realise mm -hmm. lead into 
new and interesting pathways. And I, I think that's part of what you're describing. Jevons is interesting because apart from the unfortunate marginalist turn that you <laughs> so well, yes. if tragically mm -hmm. describe, he also, <laughs> of course, is the eponym of the Jevons paradox, yes. which yes. is really crucial for understanding our environmental dilemma. Yes. And it's the thing I, I try to point out to people who tell me things like, oh, you've no idea how data centers are getting more efficient. And mm -hmm. which I say, I have every idea about how they're getting more efficient and how that means that they will be used more than they otherwise would be because they're cheaper to use, which means that their overall impact on the environment will be greater. Yes. And then they look at me like I'm some kind of crazed Marxist, which, of course, I am. And they say, <laughs> well, yeah. you know, your boyfriend, William Jevons, told you this about fucking coal mm -hmm. uh, over a century ago. You might want to think about that. But the Indeed. other name that came up for me when you were talking is a, an earlier name, uh, and that's Kant. And mm. Kant's one of these people who, until he's writing about, say, Judaism or gender, a bit like Dorothy L. Sayers, is kind mm -hmm. of fun to read. And then suddenly <laughs> you realize he occupies an entirely different world yes. of bigotry and stupidity. And then trying to make allowance for that, thinking about how these dudes had to write a lot of stuff about God in order to get published and not get exiled or jailed or killed, and that that's just a genuflection, as it were, without great depth. Mm. But there's a moment in the What is Enlightenment essay where he talks about you know throwing off absurd limits to your critical thought and, mm -hmm. you know, he mentions, uh, he talks really about the state and the church while being quite polite about both. But he also de uh, derides consumption mm. Mm -hmm. uh, as immature, just mm. like the immaturity of failing to challenge uh, big daddy state and big daddy church. And I look at this and I worry about it because I think of it as part of an emergent tendency to associate the problem of consumption with women. Mm, yes. And the way in yes. which these guys, these guys are often deriding women as in some way immature, you know, un unformed men, as it were. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yes, and absolutely. Yeah. So some of the denunciation of consumption that comes from a good hearted ecological perspective fails to see that the problem is institutional consumption. Yes. By yeah. The military and corporations mm -hmm. yeah. and arms of the state other than the military, it's really mm -hmm. not about you and me. No. And therefore, the, the notion that, you know, we can fix everything by correctly dealing with the amount of packaging that we get or right. minimizing it. Right. And the associated critique of, you know, shopping therapy, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or of uh, yeah, the, the female desire to want too much that you mm -hmm. talked about a, mm -hmm. a few minutes ago, it seems to me those things are really powerful and negative aspects, even of discourses that I otherwise might endorse, and even of those people who talk about consumer-led recoveries for the economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There can be this finger-wagging against women and consumption. Let's mm -hmm. say. Sorry for the long-winded. Uh, no, 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 no. I think, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I mean, 
absolutely. And, and obviously the consumption, the, the feminization of consumption goes back to the 19th century and before. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a kind of a Victorianist cliche, right? The idea that, I mean, have you read the poem Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti? Yes. Any okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, that's like the, <laughs> the locus classicus of this idea, right? That like, you know, when the, for the I'll, I'll explain it really quickly since in case there might be somebody listening who doesn't know the poem, but um, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy poem. It's, it's fabulous and wonderful, but completely batshit insane Um, about two young girls, Lizzie and Laura, who are sisters, they live in this town. There's no adults there. It's all very fairy tale like and unclear what they do for a living or how they support themselves or anything, which makes it interesting from a economic kind of perspective. But there are these goblins who come and these little goblin men. And of course, they're anti-Semitic caricatures, obviously, as you know, goblins and merchants always often were in the 19th century. But they come and they sell these fruits that are magical fruits. And the girls know that they're not supposed to buy them or they stop their ears um, against, you know, like Odysseus against the sirens um, in, in order not to hear the call of the of the goblin man. Anyway, long story short, one of them gives in, eats the fruit. She starts wasting away. Her sister has to save her. And in order to save her, she goes and tries to buy some fruit. The goblins, you know, start scratching at her. And so she goes back home and she has like goblin material on her or something. And so her sister starts sucking at her. And and literally the line is like, kiss me, suck me, lick my juices. It's 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 crazy. Right. Um, so both like incestuous and like lesbian and like erotic and just nuts for the 19th century, I mean. And so, and she's cured because her sister made this sacrifice for her and they'll live happily ever after. And then they get married and have kids at the end and they tell them the story. So <laughs> this poem, Victorianists love to teach this poem because it has it all. Our students love it. They think it's crazy and nuts and insane, but it also gets at exactly this thing, which is the very long-standing and intractable uh, association from the 19th century, maybe earlier, of women with desire and greed and consumption, you know, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is like both, you know, it, it, it makes the connection between the idea of sexual desire and the desire to consume really explicit, which I mean, it's always there anyway, but this makes it so clear, right, in a way that you can teach really easily and really, and really well. It's very legible. So yeah, so that's a very long way of saying that um, I think... And it's interesting, too, because this is a complete side note, but the sort of anti-Semitism of the goblin figures, and you were just mentioning Dorothy Sayers, um, you know, one of my absolute favorites. I'm just, I, I'm just starting this week, literally this week, a reading, a Zoom reading group. We started three years ago with War and Peace and then Anna Karenina, and I kind of bailed out at one point, but I'm joining up again. We're starting this year the uh, Divine Comedy and Dorothy Sayers translation. So I'm going to be living with her very soon again. I, I just love, love, love her. But yeah, that what, what do you do with all of a sudden you're just like bopping along with Lord Peter Whimsey and then boom, there's this like boom, horrifying boom. stereotype. Oh, someone's like, nose is described. It, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, utterly, exactly. And it'll be a paragraph that is completely unnecessary yeah. to the story. And suddenly yeah. you think, you know, the rest of it I can relativize culturally and I'm there in aristocratic Britain of the 30s and suddenly right. no I'm not this is a foreign world and I don't want to be in it I don't want to read this and I'm not continuing yeah 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a huge, huge philosophical question. I mean, uh, in general, I feel like I'm straying from your original question now, but the idea is we're having a conversation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if you've read this, but the Ian Fleming Foundation has come to an agreement with the publishers of his novels to remove anti-Semitic and racist uh, and right. gendered stereotypes from the right. press. So the new editions right. just don't do the things that, were in the original novels. Right. Um, well, this is, I mean, as a Nancy Drew fan, as somebody who grew up reading <laughs> Nancy Drew's, and I and I discovered, you know, my grandmothers or maybe them, I don't know what the years were, but, you know, they, they I think they started publishing in the 20s. So I found some of the, the blue-spined early ones, like in the attic. <laughs> and so I was reading the original unexpurgated versions, un, unabridged versions, and whew, yeah, there's some there's some stuff in there, and of course that's all been edited out. So when you get to the you know, oh. um, the the newer versions, I guess like the yellow back versions, they went back and and stripped all that stuff out and actually shortened them and made them all kind of regular. But yeah, that's and, you know it's an interesting question too because it's like well that's those are novels for kids. I think that's completely appropriate. Of course, I want the originals always to be available. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to go back and read as a scholar or whatever the original versions. Um, yeah. And and I think it I think it's a good thing to do to make texts available to people who, you know, are, are would, should not have to read that stuff and don't want to read that stuff. Like, on the other hand, I also, like I said, I don't like the idea. I don't know what the agreement is with Ian Fleming um, the estate or whatever that he's that those originals will will still be somewhere other than just random copies in bookstores or you know what I mean that they'll still be actually available in print for people who want to read the originals for scholarly and reasons. Mm. This is how I feel about card catalogs too. I don't you remember that um uh oh, what's his name Nick uh is it Nick Horn is it Nick, Nick Hornby? Hornby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who wrote is 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 he the one who wrote that wonderful essay about card catalogs? Um, um, yes, and he also wrote about record stores and football. Yeah, team. yeah, yeah. yeah. I've read the. I remember. I've read. I read a lot of his stuff. Uh, the the novels and and. But I can't remember. I feel really bad now because if it's not him, I feel like I'm misattributing this. But there's a wonderful essay that I think is by Nick Hornby about um, the card catalog and like the disappearance of the card catalog, and it's very lyrical. And he talks about the the fact that you know there's information in the physical objects themselves. Like when, you know, as a researcher, when you go back and you look through a card catalog, you can see when was the card written? Was it written in copper plate with, you know, with, with ink and, and were there marks on the edges, the corners of the cards from it being thumbed a lot? You know, was this a, a card where people stopped a lot? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's ephemeral and, and maybe, you know, impressionistic information, but it's still information that is, completely lost when you digitize everything it's not just you know what's printed on the card that's that's giving you that kind of insight into you know whatever you might be i mean his basic point is who knows what researchers of the future are going to be looking for we you know we can't know right. that and so if we're throwing this stuff away not preserving it anyway but so yeah i don't know do you know what the ian fleming story is are they gonna are the original uh, well, i i well, it's fairly new. It only happened in the last 12 months. I'm following okay. it at the moment. There is an, an outrage expressed on the part of the crypto-fascist British <laughs> oh, uh, print media. Yeah. As you can imagine. I can. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. You know, who wow. do not want to see 
the removal of stereotypes about Jewish people, black people and women, mm -hmm. yeah. because, yeah. you know, that's what the master produced. So I'm following that controversy. And I gather from the statements made by the Fleming people that this is just the editions that are being re-released now. And mm -hmm. in fact, the books don't sell that many copies nowadays. Mm. They've sold a lot through the time. Right. But they don't sell many now because people just consume the films. Right. Yeah. Which are available in the repertory form, of course, very easily. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. well as being occasionally produced as new items. Right. But it's an interesting thing. I remember I started a journal once and the place where I worked didn't want to subscribe. And I said, because I edit it and I started it and it's and I'm here, when all the nice bundling deals that libraries make with online services fall apart, as they inevitably will, mm -hmm. it will be the library of record. Right. Just like, you know, there are certain libraries in the United States where all government documents that are not secret uh, are deposited and they become mm -hmm. libraries of record. And they finally agreed to subscribe to the portion. <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting question you ask about how these items become available. Fleming's papers and other things are all in a U.S. college library. They were all sold on and so they're probably well preserved, but who knows. So moving on, if I could... Mm -hmm. Yes. We've got a, a little while left. I wanted to ask if I may two more questions mm -hmm. and then invite you to add or subtract from what we've already covered. So okay. my first question is to ask you about your world outside the conventions of writing and teaching, which are important mm -hmm. conventions. You are involved in podcasting as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. For yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, the podcast started, well, I guess in order to talk about the podcast, I have to back up a little bit, which is um, a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, I started a, bl a blog, I guess. I, the word blog seems really weird to me. It seems very dated. <laughs> when people call it a blog, I sort of like recoil a little, like it's not a blog, it's a it's a thing. It's a substack or whatever. Anyway, I started this project where I wanted to, I wanted to do different kinds of writing. I wanted to do more creative writing. And, you know, I was, I was trained as a creative writer, as an undergraduate, as a poet, and I haven't really done a lot of it. Uh, so I started this thing where I was going to write an essay every week and it was for 52 weeks. So a whole year of essays. And I solicited topics from friends. So, and the idea was that it'd be like, you know, between a thousand and 2000 words, I would write for a half an hour every day, except Sunday. And so, you know, there'd be three hours of writing exactly like a perfect discipline and whatever I had would then be the essay. And it was really freeing because it meant I didn't, I, I'm a huge perfectionist. I'm a slow writer. I write enormous amounts very quickly, but then I never release them. I never let them go. Right. Because I can't, because I'm, so this was going to be this kind of thing where like, well, I have an excuse. I have a built in, like, this is three hours of work. I don't have to be a perfectionist about it. So I started doing this and it was really fun. And people gave me topics like tea and cocktails and, you know, stuff like that. So then my friend Tanya 
from college uh, contacted me and said, and she's, um, she has a book called Beyond Your Bubble. She's a psychologist. She's a professor at UC Santa Barbara. And she had this like mass market, very well-received book about communicating with people across the political divide called Beyond Your Bubble. So she'd been like a Good Morning America and she'd done a bunch of podcasts and she was super involved in this whole like mass media, academic, public humanities, you know, public facing stuff. So she contacted me and she said, I want to do a podcast of your essays because I like listening to things rather than reading them. <laughs> and she said, I think a lot of people feel the same way. So I said, okay. So we started this podcast and it was originally, I think, going to be just my essays, but then she also writes like short memoir pieces. So the way it works is every other podcast, one of us reads an essay and then we talk about it. So we talk about, we ask each other questions about the content and what came up in that essay, but also we just riff on stuff kind of like this. <laughs> so we just talk about whatever comes to mind. And so we started doing it, I want to say a year ago. It's been super, super fun. Um, it's quasi-academic. We're both academics, so we can't help but talk about academic-ish things. But it's much more about, you know, pop culture and, you know, what's going on in the world today and and whatever else comes to mind based on the topics of the essays. So, yeah, it's been super fun. I don't know. I mean, I, you're a podcaster, obviously, so I don't – I'm very new at this, and I've only been doing it for a year. I'm finding, personally, the talking part is really fun the editing part is kind of kicking my butt. I have to, I have to say, so I don't know, um, you know, how much people edit their podcast. Maybe I'm doing it too much. Maybe I should just relax a little bit and, and let it be more freeform or whatever, but yeah. So that's been, that's been super fun and a way to bridge. I mean, I am thinking of it as all of it as it's para academic. It's not, it's informed by my research. It's informed by my scholarship, but it's not, you know, it's something that's supposed to be accessible to people who aren't trained in a dis in this discipline or or just, you know, want to have some more fun with some of the ideas that come up out of our scholarly work that we, you know, we can talk about with our families or whatever. So, yeah. And can you tell us what it's called? Oh, sure. Of course. It's called Dr. Waffle and Friends, because my my Substack, my blog is called Dr. Waffle. I, I'm not really 100 percent sure why people do ask that all the time. I Years ago, I was at a, um, a a Christmas festival lights thingy in Vancouver. I was super hungry. I saw, I was like wandering around thinking, surely there's food trucks at this thing. And I saw a sign that said Dr. Waffle on it. And I got really excited. And then I realized it was actually just an old rusty sign that was kind of leaned up against a fence somewhere. But it's a really cool sign. So I took a picture of it. And that became my, that's my little banner on my blog. And I just decided I was Dr. Waffle. So uh, yeah, so it's Dr. Waffle and friends, even though there's only one friend. And <laughs> I, I think there was like original concept that we would have lots of rotating guests or whatever. We've had one person on, so we're working on it. Well, thank you for sharing Yeah, that very uh, cool story, actually. So my second and last question is mm -hmm. to ask Dr. Waffle <laughs> how she finds stuff out. How do you do research? Now, this can sound like a, a nasty review committee full of scientists and social scientists questioning a, a literary scholar. I don't yeah. mean it like that. I mean, mm -hmm. how do you find shit out? What do you do? 
Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, it obviously, I mean, it depends a lot on the thing I'm imagining the information is going to be used for, right? So obviously, I'm sitting down to write a scholarly article. I start with, you know, the MLA, speaking Modern Language Association database, right, which is the the place where lists all the scholarly articles in my field on that particular topic. So I start with, you know, bibliography, and then I go and read stuff. Um, if I'm looking something up, like, I just wrote an essay for Dr. Waffle just wrote an essay. I guess I'll keep myself separate from Dr. Waffle. <laughs> Dr. Waffle just wrote an essay about FOMO, the fear of missing out, you know, that kind of little pop culture phenomenon and Jane Austen. So this is what I mean about it being para-academic. It's like, I'm like, you know, it's a fun thing to write. Cause I was like, the, these, these Austen novels are full of characters experiencing FOMO. And so I want to think about like what Jane Austen has to teach us about how do you deal with these feelings, now, right? Can, can I interrupt? May I interrupt? Yes. You yes. Ask whether you know the origin of the expression fear of missing out. I do. That This is exactly where I was going with this is. So if it's for something like this, where I don't have to publish it with, a, you know, in a peer reviewed way, I just go to, of course, I just go to the internet. That's what everybody does. I Google it. And then you know, I go down rabbit holes and I find more and more and more stuff out. So, mm. um, yeah, so I found out, or at least uh, now I'll be interested. I'll tell you what my understanding of it is. And then maybe you can tell me if I'm, if you have the same one, uh, that it was the, the term was coined in an essay by a Harvard business school graduate student who wrote an essay called whatever his last name is, it's like McGinnis or McGinty or something, an Irish name, um, fear of theory of FOs, the two FOs or something. It was like fear of missing out and fear of something better or something like that. Um, but anyway, but then I did this whole thing where I was like, well, actually there's this other marketing guy who wrote an, a thing about marketing who claims that he started the term and I kind of invented a fake controversy. <laughs> Just to write the essay, right? Just to be, just to be funny. But yeah, so it's not that old. It's like 20, I want to say less than 20 years old at this point. So, but what was, is that the, the origin story that you have or? Well, we've all got different ones, but the, yeah. the Royal Mail in Britain conducted a massive study into early cell phone use. And in the report that came out, they coined the expression FOMO. Oh, which was okay. then so, taken up by business hacks. Oh, okay. Well, I I and, literally did not. I would love to know if you could like send me that link or if you have that uh, story about that. That would be great because I did not come say, across the Royal Mail. They're all origin myths. Yeah. Of and so when I say, do you know where that comes from? It's not <laughs> as though I have faith in my story. No. It's just well, that I love the the struggle over trying to find the first reference to X, Y, and Z. You know what I mean? It, Absolutely. And it's it's a move that this, you know, I recognize that I was being part of a genre, right? It's a move that this kind of article or essay has to make, right? You have to start with, this is where the, the term comes from. But what was so interesting about it is that the, um, the marketing dude, who was some people said was really this, the, you know, he, he'd written it four years earlier. It's like, because he wrote the phrase fear of missing out, which I can find for you in other articles from the seventies and the sixties. It's just like, it's not, it's a common phrase, you know? So uh, it's very, the whole thing is very silly, but anyway, but the whole, well, I guess just the is acronym the is another thing. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. Yes. Yes. This, so, yeah. the, so getting back to how you find things out, mm -hmm. do you, are you interested in, is it relevant to you in part as a Victorianist, 
but as many other categories of writer also, to go into archives physically, to go mm. to the libraries and so on. Is that still something that is part of your world or is that diminished because of digitization and because of COVID-19 and so on? Funny you should ask that question because, indeed, I have written a whole essay about it. <laughs> About oh, libraries. Sorry, I haven't read it. Yeah. I no, no, no. It's fine. Oh my God. This there's 52 of them, or however many there's like more, because I kept going even after I finished my 52. So yeah, there I do have one about libraries, which is actually is my favorite one. Um it's called My Libraries. And I talk about my relationship with the libraries that I've had since an undergrad. I went to University of Pennsylvania and then grad school and the various places I've taught. Um, and how that relationship changed over the years because of the internet, et cetera, et cetera. So I, it's a whole big thing. But to make a long story short, I've recently, I found myself falling away from the library and making a conscious decision in the past year to start going back to the physical mm-hmm. spaces mm-hmm. and and looking at things and, and making my students do it too. I have like extra credit. I had a, a taught a class on the Brontes last semester and they had some extra credit assignments that involved going and like looking up words in the actual paper OED, which isn't even in the reference section anymore because we don't have a reference section anymore. We don't even have a reference librarian anymore. It's like, I know, I know it's crazy. Um, So it's like just shelved in a regular, uh, when I was a grad student, uh, my job, my kind of you know, part-time job that I, I had to make ends meet was in the reference department of the library. And so it was partly shelving, reshelving, partly, uh, you know, whatever. But part of it was answering the phone when people called to ask questions <laughs> because this was the 90s. And that's when you wanted to find something out to answer your question. You called the li- you called the library, right? If you couldn't go in in person, you would call the reference desk. And I think the New York Times Public Library was famous for doing this. I don't even know if they still do or not. They probably do because they're, you know, who knows? But anyway, um, yeah, so people would call and they'd ask me like, what's the, po- what's the population of Mauritania or who, you know, who, who has the, what was the RBI record in such and such year? And then we would go and look it up for them and then tell them the answer. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of rambling here, but yeah, my, I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> about this question. And I, and I also feel like I'm starting to get interested again in the the erratic aspect of that of, and and yeah. just to sorry i'm i know i said i had mm-hmm. one more question but no, no, it's fine. one about how you find things out you have a very sophisticated understanding of the history of economic thought is that something that's autodidactic yes or did you take classes in it how did you come to no, understand no, no, no. All it's this? it's a hundred percent self-taught um so yeah i mean i was a i was a philosophy and english major as an undergraduate and i was trained in creative writing so like zero i think i took i took econ 1a and 1b i think that they were called like my freshman year because that's what everybody did and that's it and so when i was in grad school um i took a class with michael warner um who works on he's an very well-known Americanist who works on economics and stuff. He was a collaborative Lauren Berlant. And he taught, we taught, (laughs) he taught a class called American Markets Erotic Utopias. That was the title of the course. And um, we read a bunch of Walter Ben Michaels and some other people working on 
economic stuff, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so I got interested and then I decided that's what I wanted to work on. And then I just read everything. I just read, I read all kinds of stuff. I read both textbooks and kind of, you know, explanations of 19th century political economy, but then also read the stuff itself, read Marx and Ruskin and Malthus and I read the principles my whole, I have a, like a, a cottage industry of explaining to people that if they refer to Malthus's economics or his political economy only with reference to the principle, uh, sorry, the essay in population, they're they're not doing Malthus because he has this huge masterwork that's like volumes and volumes called the principles of political economy that in many ways contradicts the conclusions of the essay on population. So I read all that stuff and then I read, you know, people writing about it and that's, yeah. It was a completely self, mm. wow. Looking back on now, it's like, I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know that I would have had the energy to do it had I known how much reading it was going to be. Like when I started, I didn't realize that it's like how much, how much there was, but yeah. Yeah. So that's all in there now. Wonderful. Wonderful. So could I conclude things by asking you whether there are things you want to add to what we've discussed or topics we haven't mentioned at all that you'd like to chat through for a moment well i guess i feel like i started off with um my kind of comment about ai that <laughs> we didn't actually really get to so i i'm just i'm just thinking about it a lot lately because uh partly because i'm planning my i'm planning my next essay my fun you know fun essay that i'm going to write is going to be about chat gbt because i've never I've never used it. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how to talk to it. I don't know where to find it. I've like deliberately kept myself completely ignorant of it. Like I'm, I, when people say they ask ChatGPT something, I actually don't know literally what infrastructure they're talking about. Like, how do you find ChatGPT? Like, okay. is it a thing? Is it a program? Is it an app? I don't know. And so. I've, I'm I'm going to break the seal. I've decided I'm going to write an essay. I'm going to start the essay like in my own voice. And then I'm going to ask ChatGP to help me write it. And I'm going to like do a kind of dramatic version of like how the essay changes or what ChatGPT does for it or whatever. And I have a, I have a friend who's like 30 years old um, who I jokingly call young, young Jeremy and young Jeremy is, <laughs> is going to sit me down. He's a he's an engineer. He's going to sit me down and show me how to make ChatGPT work. And we're going to do this together. So um I'm just I'm I'm obsessing over it and super anxious about it and worried that, you know, it's going to among many other things that are about to ruin everything that it's it's one of the things on the horizon that's just messing everything up. So, we'll see. Maybe I'll come out of this thinking like, cool, this is actually a really cool thing and and there's no need to worry about it replacing human creativity anytime soon, but I just have to say one final thing. I'm just pissed off. Like I'm just I'm just pissed off because you know, the idea is, is always, it's always a bait and switch. It's always like, oh, we're going to come up with, speaking of labor, we're going to come up with these things that will free us up, right, to not do the hard, like sewage, sewage cleaning, or you know what I mean? Like, it's going to be, these things are going to keep us from having to do this horrible manual labor, and, and we're going to be free to live the life of the mind or whatever. And the first things, the very first things they go for are like writing, <laughs> writing and making music and making visual art. Like, why would you do that? Like what? I don't, anyway, so I'm, I'm angry and annoyed, but. Um, well, think about how try. happy American women were during Eisenhower because they had these wonderful labor-saving devices <laughs> to use at home. It could be as good as that. Exactly. 
<laughs> That's exactly right. Well, back to Jevons, right? All we're doing is just making ourselves more efficient so that we can continue to be dependent on these things. So yeah, yeah, it all comes full circle. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. It was really wonderful chatting to you and uh, very fulfilling for me. I feel as though I learned a lot and well, I'm thank sure you. people it was fun, will enjoy yeah. listening. Great. Thanks very much, Toby. I appreciate it. <laughs>